Hey, listener, I have good news for you. We are opening registrations for the lettering seminar again this month during Black Friday, and it's going to be big. In case you're just hearing about it, it's a live training program I first held in Berlin in 2017 to educate my students and unlock their creative potential. Since 2020, I've been teaching this live seminar as an online course with video lessons and tools for aspiring lettering artists who want to take their skills and careers to the next level. And to give you a full walkthrough of the course curriculum and what's included, I'll be holding a free lettering masterclass for you. Yes, you can sign up to the masterclass by simply going to martinaflor.com slash lettering masterclass. That is martinaflor.com slash lettering masterclass. Those who sign up get priority access to the program and to some additional perks. See you there. Uno, dos, tres. Welcome, everybody, to Letter Now, a podcast where we nurture the creatives, illustrators, designers, and makers of tomorrow, today. My name is Martina Flor. I'm a lettering artist, author, educator, and the host of the show. And today, we'll be talking about Education 3.0. And to talk about this, I have the incredible designer and educator, Sarah Hinman, with me. Sarah is the author of the best-selling book, Why Fonts Matter, and the founder of Type Tasting. Sarah has given a TED, TED Talk and she speaks at events around the world. She has made appearances on radio, TV, and podcasts to speak about fonts. Sarah is on a mission to change the way we think and talk about typography by making it fun and exciting for everybody. She specializes in making typography entertaining and relevant with humor, a dash of theater, and lashings of audience participation. She creates multi-sensory installations, immersive events, and innovative workshops designed to challenge assumptions. During 2020 and 2021, nearly 10,000 people joined her online for a talk, event, or workshop. You can find her and her work on typetasting.com and on Instagram and Twitter at typetasting. I will add this to our show notes so that you can find her, her online shop, her workshops, and everything that is related to the incredible things she does. So, hi, Sarah. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. That was a really long introduction. <laughs> I think that was like a biography of my entire life. Um, thank you. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, there's so many things. I was actually, you know, before starting the podcast, I normally research about my um, guests and I was on your website and you have so many credentials you know you you participated in so many events you gave talks all around the world and what strikes me the most is that you seem so committed to this vision or this mission that you have or you say you have which is you know making typography accessible to a lot of people. And I invited you to the podcast bec because I thought that this was a very unique um, way of, you know, investing your time. Actually, I'm always interested in why, why people you know, or why my guests dedicate their time and invest their, you know, skills 
into a specific topic and how how they come to develop a love for what they do. So I know that Sarah, or I've been following Sarah for a long time online, and I know that she has a unique approach to education, specifically typography, um, and she makes it fun, approachable, and understandable for everyone, regardless of their professional discipline. And I find this very interesting that you make a typography, which is a very specific discipline within design, approachable for a lot of people that are perhaps outside of design, right? You make these trainings for corporations and creative studios, and you sort of bring typography um, into other people's lives. So I would like to begin by asking you, why do you think that fonts matter? Why, why is typography so important that you, um, you are dedicating your lifetime to it? Um, so I didn't ever plan to dedicate anything to it. Um, I, I set up type tasting eight years ago and it was only really meant to be a year out, like a gap year. Um, I'd been running my business, my company for over 10 years. And there's a thing about when you run a, when you run a company and you have a business partner and people working for you, you, it gets to a point where you're not doing that much design anymore. And I'd kind of reached this point where I'd slightly fallen out of love with what I do. So um, it, there was a very natural point where two of my major clients, um, we parted ways just because, you know, when staff turns over at places like that, naturally they bring in new, new people. Um, and I had this, this chance where I could just take a year out. And rather than traveling around the world, which is what I'd done in the past, I thought I just want to travel around something within my world that I want to know more about. Mm. And... So I'm, I'm self-taught. I don't have a first design degree. And I'd always felt like typography was really intimidating, like it was a really niche subject that only experts know about. Mm. And I wanted to learn. So even though I taught experimental typography, by then I'd done an MA, I still kind of felt like I was an outsider. So I thought, I'm just going to spend a year exploring type but looking at it, so I'm really interested in the kind of psychology side of it. How do we respond to it? Not the rules of how it should be used, but how does it make us feel? What does it make us want to do? What um, the idea of Proustian memories, you look at a typeface and it will suddenly take you back to a moment in your childhood or maybe a moment in history that you didn't even live in, but it brings it to life in a way that it feels relevant. Um, so I just started doing that for a year and clearly eight years on, um, it accidentally became a little bit longer. <laughs> and the reason I did it um, is also, and a, a thing that I find really interesting in the way that you've just described it, everybody thinks that typography is really niche. I completely disagree. Mm. Every time we engage with pretty much anything in our everyday lives, I mean, look around you now, you can't actually look in any direction without seeing, especially you with your studio, <laughs> without seeing letters and typefaces. You, um, there are very few activities that we undertake that don't have Type, um, type typography as the interface between us and that activity. We just see it as kind of invisible because we read so instinctively. So I think that it's universal and not niche. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. And coming back to 
what you mentioned in the beginning that you at some point you you fell out of love with design and you decided to you know which is interesting also it's an interesting approach instead of like just changing careers or just moving on to a totally different topic you decided to go down deeper into one discipline within design um so i wonder why did you why did you choose typography what really sort of drive you in at that moment why do you think what did you think was there for you or what what did you know i'm always looking or i'm always asking my guests what were the cues that made you decide going deeper into something? What were the signs that you followed? Um, I didn't think that it was that important to me. It was more, it was just something I was really interested in. Um, but now looking back on it, um, I, I have actually been interested in type and letters all my life, but I just didn't, it, it wasn't, it was like seeing the end of the movie, The Sixth Sense, when it's like, ah, all the way through my life, there are those exactly what you call them, cues. I see type everywhere. I look at when I was a child, my books were covered in drawings of lettering. I would draw, obsessively draw my favourite band's names or like David Bowie or whatever when I was at school on my books. But my first ever job was as a sign maker. So it's, it's been there as almost the, the rhythm in the background, but um, it was only now I've kind of been more immersed in it that I've, I've become more aware of that. Um, but when I set up type tasting, it was also a point where lots of design software was becoming available to a much wider audience. So it wasn't just designers that were using typography. And it struck me that there was a gap, there was kind of a niche that wasn't really being taught which was to show a wider audience that if you're using these tools, wouldn't you like to know about the, um, the, the things that you're actually using the tools to work with? So typography being one of these things. And because I'd already felt it quite, found it quite intimidating, it made sense that other people, and I know other people find it intimidating. I do events, I take my pop-up typography lab to non-designer spaces. And the minute I say fonts, people just look, and you see them kind of backing away going I don't know anything about that <laughs> but then when I say ah but if I show you this font would you snog marry or avoid it and tell me what its backstory is tell you what kind of personality it has and everybody finds that they can actually answer that really easily that's interesting what what do you think it's the biggest takeaway that Or what, what do you think are the most common reactions of people when they engage with your workshops or with your experiences? Um, you know, they start by saying like, well, I don't know anything about this. This is a totally unknown world. How do they leave the room after going through your experience or going through your workshops? Hopefully with a few aha moments, if it's a specific, so I do two kinds of things. Some of them are specifically to just engage you in thinking a little bit more about letter forms and with those ones and I know because people tell me they go away and it's suddenly like this kind of visual version of an earworm everywhere they go they go for the next few days all they can see is type and signs and of course it wears off a little bit like an earworm does um, and then the other kind of things I do you're not necessarily aware so much that it's the type that you're looking at um, So there's one, one of my events is a wine and type tasting. And it's all about, do you, um, do you judge a wine by its label? And through a series of 
five different wine courses, you discover just how much not only your choices, your perception of what the wine might cost, what it tastes like, all of those things are completely influenced by lots of other factors. So there are various aha moments that you will take away from that. So, so most of the events are designed that you go on this journey of discovery for yourself. And at some point there will be a moment where I confront your expectations or your biases and you sit there and go oh <laughs> and what I really hope is that you take that away into your wider world as well you go ah mm. so maybe if my preconceptions about that couldn't be questioned maybe there are other things in my life I can question yeah I watched your TED talk before we move on to the the questions you know this is a listener driven show and Before we started, I told you that we were going to answer some of the questions from our listeners. But I've been, you know, before starting the, the this conversation, I was watching your TED Talk again. Um, and I, I stopped at some point where you were mentioning this experiment you did at one of the, your talks that you, um, I think you presented a candy to... The two different candies or actually the same candy to the audience and you made them watch a certain typography on the screen. Can you explain that experiment and how that impacted on them and their perception of the taste of that candy? So this is my um, jelly bean experiment, which I've now do loads, loads of different things. Any of you who joined me online for my, my Zoom sessions, um, a lot of you will have played that with me. Um, and it's so I did it right at the beginning when I first set up type tasting, I would volunteer to talk at anything. So the design um, design, the, the publication, the design week were organizing something. And I said, oh, I'll talk. And I thought, well, yeah, I'll just try. I tried lots of experiments. And the beauty of naivety is you don't know whether they're going to go right or wrong. So I gave the audience jelly beans and I showed them two different, very different typefaces and asked them to rate how the jelly beans tasted and um, got them to put their hands up in the air and vote. And of course, at the time, I didn't realize how completely unscientific this was. <laughs> But what I found was that when people looked at the really curvy lettering, the jelly beans tasted sweeter. When they looked at the jagged lettering, they said that they tasted um, sourer. And then I went away and I was introduced to Professor Charles Spence, who runs the Crossmodal Research Lab at um, the University of Oxford. And so he taught me how to replicate this experiment under proper scientific conditions, which we have done. And we and it works. So depending on the shape of the typeface you read while you eat an identical jelly bean, um, your perception of how sweet and how sour or how sweet and how bitter it tastes can be slightly altered. And so I do this in my events just to show if you think that typography doesn't matter, let me play this game on you. And so if it can change what you taste, what else might it change? Yeah, and that's that also puts, you know, makes us see the role of designers in a different way because we can really influence with our work. You know, you're a designer, you're a graphic designer, I'm a graphic designer. With the work we do, we can actually influence the way people think about things and they perceive even like the, the tastes that they perceive, right? So, and I want to just 
make a note on that. And we're going to go back to, to this and the role of designers in, um, in people's perception and, um, yeah, and in brands and in communication. But I want to start with our questions and I want to real, really listen to your stories as we go down the questions today. So we will start with a message coming from social media and then I will have some follow-up questions for you. So our first question is coming from Sally on Instagram. The question is, what's the right way to learn about letter making and typography? And we're really touching on a different topic here from what we were just discussing. But Sarah, as I said before, you have a unique approach to typography education. And this is, this is one of the reasons I, I've been following for so many years. It's fun and approachable. And when I see your workshops and your books, learning type makes it, you know, seems easy. Like learning to draw typography and to draw letter forms seems really easy and fun. But this is not the rule. Um, the usual way of learning um, letter design or type design seems really technical. Or I would say that most of the people believe that creating letter forms or creating type or typography is a very technical discipline that is very serious and academic um, and which is something that I think keeps a lot of people from even trying. So together with Sally's question, um, I want to ask you, why do you think this is? Why do you think that the world of typography seems so scary for many? And in relation to that, what is the right way to learn letter making if you think there's a right way and a wrong way. Um, I suspect, so we've both been following each other for all of these years, by the way. We're both mutual fans of each other's work. Um, oh, I, I, I would imagine you probably agree with me that there is no right or wrong way. The, I, I think the even the suggestion that might there might be a right or a wrong way hints at what the answer to that question is. The idea that there are gatekeepers who tell you that typography is right or typography is wrong. Um, I know lots of people get upset by the, about the title of my book, Why Fonts Matter Should Be Why Typefaces Matter, but it doesn't work as a title. <laughs> and also it tells you who the audience is. Um, it tells you that this is a mainstream audience and we are not going to sit and sweat the details and worry about all of that really academic um, all of the rules, because mm -hmm. um, in my opinion, the, the best way to learn about typography or lettering is to fall in love with it. You find something that you think looks absolutely beautiful. You put it on your wall, you draw it. And once you've fallen in love with something, everything else follows. You want to learn the rules. How, um, what would you, how would you feel about that? Because I would imagine you have quite strong opinions too. Yeah, I do think that, or in my experience, I do think, you know, I come from a very academic background and the way I approach education right now is so different and um and although I was nurtured and I grew up in an academic um, environment, I also can see, you know, and that enabled a big part of my career. Um, I also can see how that can hold me back and many others back. How that, you know, as, as much value as I see in that and how uh, as much impact it had on my own personal story, I can see that it is also very select and for a small group of people and I think that it's it is 
the mission of people like you and I can totally relate to that because I feel it's my mission as well to bring to open this world to a lot uh, to a broader uh, audience right and show that this is something anyone can approach and this is something that anyone can learn there's no really there's no real um you know secret to it or formula or you don't have to be born gifted to actually be able to do it and you mentioned before the idea of gatekeepers so I wanted to uh, um, make a follow-up question to that and why do you think there's gatekeepers to uh, to this area of design to the this discipline of design and what what do you think are the pursuits of those gatekeepers? Ooh, I, I, there, I think there are gatekeepers to bridging pretty much any topic that has mm. been around for a long time that has an established academic pathway. Um, I I don't know why. Um, so my because my audience is all is not the academic typography audience mm. um anybody who gets upset with what i do as far as i'm concerned you're not my audience i'm mm. if if what i do do is offending you then yeah you don't need me you you've got or there's something else another way in for you what i would say is um i i think typography can feel really intimidating because it appears to be such a historic and academic topic, especially if you look at um, the the kind of book design typefaces to the untrained eye, there's not that much difference between one to another. So it must look like we're talking about kind of tiny, tiny little nuances. And you only really need to know about those details if you're going to become a graphic designer or a typographer or do something within those disciplines. I kind of think that with fashion or with music we can all every single person can talk about how much we enjoy fashion or how much we enjoy music but we don't have to be a musician we don't have to understand the academic discipline behind it we don't have to read music we don't have to be able to make clothes but we can still talk about our appreciation of it and i think typography is missing that side to it it's missing the type consumers appreciation society almost It, it's almost as if you can only talk about it if you're if you're on the expert side of things. And I think we're trying to sit on the other side. And also because this is our businesses, um, we need to entice people in. Just come and come and enjoy this. Come and have fun with it. And then you can find out the rules later. Yeah, and that is a perfect segue for another follow-up question that I had for you. It seems that, you know, the sense of humor is very present in the way you teach and uh, in, in your work as well. And I wanted to ask you, where, where is that rooted? Like, why is um, sense of humor important to you? Because it, that's because I think things are funny. <laughs> and um, it's just, it's more exciting to learn when you share humor in things and it's just still for me I, th I just think things are funny and I like I would I would rather build in humor and mischief and silliness um actually on a, and on a serious level <coughs> excuse me on a serious level also if you think about how children learn children learn through curiosity through things going wrong through creating mischief so 
and that's how I learned about typography and because that served me well it was it for me it was a good way to get into it it seems to be a perfect way to share it with other people and it also means that when I run an event I'm having lots of fun because people come along we'll have a laugh things go a bit wrong <laughs> we learn some things I learn some things off everybody else because I'm constantly asking questions like you thought that why did you think that that's really interesting that's different to why how I thought about it let's compare our experiences and um, yeah usually usually ends up getting quite silly <laughs> Yeah, and I think also it relates a lot to this idea that you have or this concept and mission that you have of like making typography more approachable for a wider audience. And I think sense of humor is a great way of bringing people closer to it, you know, have a laugh, get to know this and, uh, you know, have fun in the process. And I'm always interested in understanding you know when I invite a an artist to the podcast I'm always interested in understanding how how did they develop their their style or how did they find did they find a certain niche and in your case how do you feel that you because you have this this approach to teaching and this special style of teaching Um, how did you develop that approach? How did that come together throughout time? Because I can imagine that your first workshop was very different from how the workshops are nowadays, right? Oh, um, yeah, um, the early ones. So I also, I did teach experimental typography at the um, London College of Communication for a few years. So a lot of, I, I learned how to teach in a way while I was doing that. Um, oh, I've forgotten what your question was. <laughs> so how did you develop the, oh, yes. your Thank style you. of teaching? How did you develop the concepts for your workshops? And you can answer this from any perspective, either how, you know, how you started creating different series of workshops or how, you know, what were the things that you started um, realizing as you were teaching your workshops and like what were the reactions of people and how you took that back into your system of teaching? So, so the way everything develops is it's all complete trial and error. When, when I started type tasting, I didn't think about it. I just launched it. Um, the very first evening was on Valentine's Day 2013, and it was an evening of typographic swearing and cursing as an antidote to all the gooey romance of Valentine's Day. And so everybody was just stenciling swear words, getting drinking more and more, so the swear words got a little bit more um, flamboyant <laughs> as the evening <laughs> went on. Um, and it was a range of lots of different people, and it was just so interesting to see how everybody responded to it. And as I've gone along, that's, that's pretty much how it's all developed. So I want to learn from you as much as I want you to learn from me. I Because a lot of what I do is about researching this stuff that hasn't really been researched. So psychology of typography is such a difficult thing to research that hasn't been much. So I, I take my pop-up typography lab everywhere. I set up lots of games. You take part in the games. They are designed so that you have a revelation or you get to think about something, but also I'm asking you lots of questions. So I'm also doing lots of qualitative research. You know that I, it, it's, a, it's a mutual um, 
rapport. I mean, I'm not taking, I'm not doing any market research for any brands, and I, you, you know, while you're doing it, that we're we're just sharing these conversations. Um, and so all of it has been in response to how people have reacted, what they want, what they want more of, what works, what doesn't work. And also, I think it's really important. So as I said, I don't come from a design college background, so I've taught myself all the way along. And I think it's really important to meet people from lots of other disciplines. Mm. So really early on, I met um, a perfumer and a chef and an art historian, and we started talking about things together. And then I started going to these big meetup groups where we had people from every discipline you can imagine, and we started doing these weird games. Then that was when I got introduced to Heston Blumenthal, the chef, and got to go to the Fat Duck Lab and started realizing that everything is connected. And actually the most interesting ideas are when you work with somebody from a completely different discipline. So I work with a perfumer and we'll sit there and go, okay, what, what, does, what do these different typefaces smell like and what mood do they evoke and the perfumer will be in and what, how can we represent my smell in terms of shape and words and language? And then the chef comes along and it's like, okay, how can we recreate this, this in a kind of a meal or a, um, an experience? And it's really interesting how, Firstly, that takes away any academic language about typography. So it's a real level playing field. Suddenly you're talking about really visceral experiential things and you're trying to find descriptive words to compare things. Um, and, and also it just shows how it's just like typography is language. It's what your voice looks like. So in my case, it personifies, I guess, how I, if you think there's humor in it, that probably means that it's representing my sense of humor, but it also reflects how we experience the world, how we smell it, how we taste it, how we remember it. So it makes sense that it will be linked in, into all of these things. And these, I build these into all of my events and experiences because it's just really fun to see the looks on people's faces when I say sniff that font and they're like, what? And then, then it makes sense. <laughs> So these these meetings with uh, with a cook and a um, you said an, an scent designer or a perfumer perfumer maker. a chef a perfumer. And yeah. so they, they they were prior to you starting type tasting or it was part of your research it was all at this it was all at the same time they just happened to be this group of people called cross modalists who had just started meeting as I was setting this up. Um, they, they don't meet anymore. They, they, they're scattered around the world. It was just this two years where all of these people connected. And it was just a really interesting and amazing community to be a part of. And I think we all got so much inspiration from it. So I want to go back to one of the things we were discussing before, which had to do with the role of graphic designers and creators and how you know by manipulating typography and fonts and giving shape to that they can also manipulate or have an influence on the way we perceive things and that's a that's a great responsibility and I know that you you worked as a graphic designer for a long time in um in the corporate world or in the agency, uh, you know, design agency world. And at some point 
you had a moral dilemma in that um you know, in that sense. So I, I would like you to tell this story to our listeners, if you would like to share. Uh, yes, of course. It, it was It's back in the, the early days of my career, but I would imagine it's, um, it's a point that lots of designers come to. And if they don't, I encourage them to think about this. Mm-hmm. So I'd been... I, as I said, I'm very self-taught. So I worked my, I'd worked my way up from, I started off as what was called a Mac monkey back in the day. Um, and then worked my way up to being a designer. And I freelanced in lots of the really big agencies. Um, <coughs> I freelanced in lots of the big agencies. And there was a point at which I was working at, um, in the design department of a big PR company. And it was that point as where I'd become a designer and like all of the designers, we would, a client would brief us in on something, you would come up with this project and you'd be so pleased with your design skills and how you had answered the brief. And you would be, and you would then go away and say, yes, I, oh, isn't this a beautiful piece of work I did? And there was a point at which um, there was a a tobacco account Mm. and I was asked to work on this tobacco account. And it was the first time that I'd really sat and questioned what I was doing as a graphic designer. And I didn't want to work on a tobacco account. And I didn't want to do something that would um, persuade people to smoke. And at the time I was actually a smoker, so it wasn't even, um, but I just did not, I, I realized that as a designer, um, it was more, it wasn't just about creating beautiful, graphic designer responses to a brief that actually it was the first time that I really realized that there was more to it and that actually there were the responsibility as you you said um went was bigger and I the minute I felt that kind of weight of responsibility um I said no I didn't want to work on that count and also it ended up with um I left the job because if I wasn't going to work on all of the accounts, then I couldn't be employed there. And I, in a way, I was kind of happy to leave. I didn't want to have those moral dilemmas. And the minute you've, the minute you've woken up to it, you can't go backwards. Mm. So I then ended up leaving and working for really small companies. It, it doesn't mean that every single job that I've ever done since has been perfect I mean we all have to you it's a balance every time you do a project but um I I started working out where I draw the line and when you look back at your you know your milestones as a designer what would you say are your milestones that led to eventually create your own company with that sort of embodies your mission Um, which is type tasting right now. So when you look back um, and you look at this experience working with corporate or in the agency world and having this moral dilemma and then moving on to working for smaller studios, how did that continue um, and eventually led to creating and founding type tasting? Oh, I'm very boring. I had no plan. <laughs> I kind of blow things up and then have to deal with the consequences. So I left a job and had to earn some money. So I started freelancing. Um, then somebody gave me a job and I was doing my MA and then that company went into liquidation. So then I was freelancing again. And within two years, my accountant said, 
um, you probably ought to turn yourself into a company because you've got regular clients and mm. you're not just a freelancer anymore. So it's okay. And the same with type tasting. It's not really a business. It was just a gap year that I'm still doing. <laughs> so it, there was no business plan. Um, I, I really like the idea that you can just go set off somewhere and explore. We live in this amazing world right now where thanks to social media, thanks to all of the different tools that we have, um, we're now free, especially because we come from very, I come from a privileged background at the end of the day in that I can do this. I could take a year out because I'd worked so hard at my company and running my company. Um, and yeah, we can just explore and see what's going to happen. Um, and my somehow the rent always gets paid every month. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's fun to just see what's going to happen next. So there is no plan. I, I might not that. be doing typography in a year's time. I might do something else completely different. Well, I love that. I love that you say that because it's so easy to, to think that, you know, that because you enjoy what you do right now, you might be marrying to do that forever and people will put you in this kind of box where you are only, you know, you're Sarah, the one who teaches about fonts and typography and you might want to develop another side of your personality or your skills, right? And I, I'm interested also in hearing a little bit about how you approach creating your content and your books because you don't you don't only create workshops or offer workshops but you also write books and you conduct this research based um quizzes and i saw something on, on your website that had to do with you know researching and answering quizzes that you would later you know you would take later this information onto your Uh, a series of books that you publish on type tasting and I think this relates a lot with what you just mentioned which is like I want to learn from you as much as you learn from me so throughout your experiences you get a lot of insights and you use those insights um, to create new things in, in your case could be books or new workshops so how how this um, how this process comes together like you use this research to inform your books and how did did this start happening how did you come up with that idea um, again it's all very kind of loose if there's a so right at the beginning when I first set up type tasting I had lots of questions like and they were really fundamental ones um, they were things like I think different typefaces have personalities firstly am I the only person or does everybody see different personalities and typefaces? And then secondly, do they see the same ones that I do? Uh, so that, that's one of the, the quizzes that you might have done on the website is I then started this thing called um, a font census where I put different typefaces in and it's just lots of multiple choice questions about their personalities. And once a typeface has reached about two or 300 um, responses, I can then compare it to all of the other ones. So you can start seeing all of these personality traits. So the first set of research went into why fonts matter. So there's a couple, two or three different chapters where you get to see how those kind of results were woven in. And so the research takes lots of different forms. Um, I will also do, so that's more quantitative because you're, you're gathering up um, data. 
uh, in a way that I can then publish it. Um, other things will be more conversational. I will show, we will have conversations. I will show you different typefaces. You'll, you'll say, oh, that makes me think of, there's one game I do where I've got records and I've put, I've taken the labels off the records and I've just put single letters on the, um, on the records. Uh, and there's one where there's a, a single letter in a black letter typeface. And so I ask everybody, and I do this at really big talks as well, uh, what kind of music is on that record, just judging by the typeface. So if I ask you, what kind of music would you think is on a record if you saw black letter on the cover? I would say it's rock. You say rock? Rock, I would say, yeah. Rock, okay. Um, so... It's, so the, my version has heavy metal on it, um, but when I do this at a really big talk, you'll hear everybody in the audience saying everything from rap, hip hop, rock, um, heavy metal. Um, we might and other answers might be things like somebody said Mexican ska one time, um, oh, yeah. Wagner. Uh, you get this whole range of different answers just from a single letter. Uh, but then it's really interesting to ask why. And you start realizing that it says less about the typeface and it says, le it says more about every single one of us as individuals, mm -hmm. where we grew up, who we grew up with, what kind of music. Sometimes it, it might be because you're thinking about me, <laughs> what kind of music will, you, will I have paired with that typeface? Um, but it's just so interesting to see how it reflects our own experiences and expectations. And so then I will start asking people, especially with something like Mexican Scar, it's like, oh, well, oh, okay. And then once you start thinking about it, you can understand why. So some of the research is like that, it's all these conversations. Some of it is just gathering up data and all of it is just to answer a question. Sometimes somebody will ask me a question on Twitter, I don't know the answer. So let's go and do a Twitter poll or let's go and do a little bit of research. Um, I don't work for clients. So none of it goes into um, market research in that way. So all of it just goes back out into, uh, into being shared. Some of it can't just be, some of it would need a statistician. So those have to wait for the scientists to get involved, but other stuff, um, any of the talks you come to you will I will share lots of the stuff that I've learned and lots of it's really funny people people's answers are better than any answer I can ever come up with that's so interesting and because also you you give that back through your workshops and through your books so in a way that it comes back to the audience the same people that actually answer your quizzes and went through your uh, research um so I would like, before we move on to our story time section, I would like to shortly speak about um, your book, Why Fonts Matter. And I would like you to tell our listeners a little bit about what this book is about and what motivated it. So Why Fonts Matter was first self-published as the type taster. So type tasting the type taster. And it was self-published because Um, a publisher had asked me to write a book about typography, but this wasn't the book they wanted. And as I asked lots of publishers, they were like, no, that's far too niche. Nobody's going to be interested. But I really believed in it. 
And so I really wanted to find a way to get it out there. And I would say it's a diary of the first year of running type type tasting. It's like a diary of my gap year. So it opens with me sitting, being interviewed on Radio 4 on the Today Show. And I'd just been told how many people, millions of people were listening and it was terrifying. And they were saying, but typefaces, they don't really matter. And, and, And so it's kind of the story of my journey and like I just explained about why I set up the font census, how I started asking all of these questions. So, um, and I dug up as much research as I could. A lot of it was from like the really early 1900s. A lot of it repeats things like um, cultural stereotypes, gender stereotypes, which I found so annoying. We need to change these stereotypes. And the word stereotype, of course, comes from typography. <laughs> which, one, which one comes to mind? What, what, which one is more present for you? Of these stereotypes. Oh, um, oh, gender stereotypes in in typography. Just ah, <laughs> there, there's no need to be. There's no need for stereotypes anyway. But women are not curly, scripty. Men are not uppercase, um, angular. <laughs> just ah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and but if you look at some of the research that goes back to the early 1900s, they were already talking about that it then. So this is. These are cliches that have been entrenched in the way that we talk for so long. Um, and yeah, I, and it's nice working with students, especially. And so it's like, yes, everybody is up for changing these ones. Um, but then at the end of the book, you've also got some recipes um, because I do lots of stuff where I will ask you to turn type into food. So it's got just got lots and lots of the weird multisensory um, psychology stuff all the way through the book. But it's full of games and I take you on a type safari of my local area and then I challenge you to go and do your own type safari um and so it was literally it was the book that I wanted to read that didn't exist and then when I'd spent a year doing all of this research it was like well I might as well put it into a book and then within six months of it being self-published um I had offers from three different pub- three different publishers and so Penguin Random House now publish it. Uh, but this is such, again, it's such an amazing time. If you have an idea for a book and you have to really believe in it and it's really hard work and you have to do all of the publicity and the promotion, as I know you know, um, but you can do it. And you can raise the money, whether you do a Kickstarter, I did it through pre-orders and having a lovely printer who would let me pay in installments. but. Um, we live in a world where you can now do this and it can then be picked up by a mainstream publisher. It's no longer kind of niche vanity press. It's um, So if any of you have an idea for something, especially if it's like a book that you want to read that doesn't yet exist, do it. I think that's such an empowering attitude because, you know, first what you mentioned that you know, you created the book you wanted to read that didn't exist, which is a great, you know, it's a great starting point for doing something. Hey, I I need this. I want to learn about this. Why don't I create or why don't I research? And what I research, I share that with others, right? You don't need to have it all figured out to actually be able to share that with others, right? And Um, And this idea of like finding ways to do it. Perhaps it's not the perfect way you imagine with the 10,000 copies distributed worldwide, 
but you can just you know uh, start small and see how that impacts later. Perhaps there is a publisher coming to you after um, after you make that first step, right? So I think that's a very empowering way to make it happen anyways, no matter if there's a publisher there uh, or not, or no matter if you actually know a lot about the topic or not, right? So, Sarah, we all love stories, and um, I want to move now on to our story time section, which is the last section of our podcast. Um, we all love stories, and in this section, we want to go beyond the perfectly curated lives that we normally share on social media. So we want to allow space for real stories and we want to hear about the biggest challenge or failure uh, as an educator or designer and how that impacted an author and how that impacted your work and career is there any story that you would like to share with our listeners um i found this really hard to think about because first of all I think failure is the best thing that can happen because it's only when you push something to failure that you know where the edges are and where you can actually learn something new. Um, so I do have two stories I can tell to illustrate that. The first one is um, I'm a kickboxer and when I first started kickboxing, there is this, any of you who are kickboxers, you'll know what a spinning hook kick is. It's this ridiculous flamboyant spinning around kick. I'm really short, I'm less than five foot two and you do it and the idea is you can kick a six foot five man in, in the head very gently. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not trying to hurt anybody. And the only way I could learn to do it was by falling over and falling over and everybody laughing at me and the gym instructors laughing at me because I had to just keep falling over until I could work out where that balance point was that was just as far as I could go. And now it's the kick that I'm really good at. <laughs> Uh, but it only happened by failing and failing and failing and failing until I worked out where that just where that that point of balance was. Um, and the other the other example I've got is um, when I was learning how to do research. So I came along, did all of this research for type tasting as a naive graphic designer, not really understanding how scientists do research. And I've now been taught <laughs> over and over again that it's it's actually how you collect the data and there's lots of things about it and there was um, this one experiment that i did um, and it was all about putting cheap and expensive typefaces on chocolate to see if i could make chocolate taste more expensive or taste cheaper because as designers we know we can make a, a chocolate wrapper look really expensive and we can make it look really cheap and my jelly beans had shown that i can make taste something taste sweeter or sourer so went along to this huge event, three days. I took loads of this amazing green and black chocolate. And I'd already done other experiments where I'd calibrated what an expensive and a cheap typeface was. I didn't make any assumptions. Every half an hour, I switched all of the materials over. And so every half an hour, you either look, everything you looked at was an expensive typeface, including the questionnaire, or it was a cheap typeface, including the questionnaire. And I asked you things like, how much would you pay for this chocolate? How delicious does it taste? How likely would you be to buy it? And I went home, tallied all the, all the answers up. And it was amazing when people read the look, when people looked at the expensive typeface, they rated the chocolate as tasting better, tasting more expensive. And I went away thinking, wow, this is amazing. We can actually use typography to make a difference. 
I went back the next day um, and the next day I'd completely blown my chocolate budget. So I took really cheap chocolate um, <laughs> and did the same thing all over again. Same thing, switched the typeface every half an hour, went home, tallied up results and I was really disappointed. Not only had it not worked, but the results were completely the opposite way around. And I that I just thought, oh, this is the biggest failure of an experiment that I've ever done. And it was huge. We'd had hundreds of people. I spent lots of money on the chocolate. And it, so it was a really public fail. But then I went and asked Professor Charles, who was there and organizing well, part of the whole thing. Um, I explained what had happened. And he kind of looked at the chocolate, tasted the chocolate, looked at my results. And he went, it's because you tried to convince people that really cheap chocolate was expensive. So your experiment actually worked. But what you did in the second instance was the minute people saw a really expensive typeface, they expected chocolate that was in the realms of expensive. And when they tasted it, when they tasted the cheap chocolate, not only did it not ring true, but actually the disappointment amplified how cheap the chocolate tasted. And so it was only by trying that and running out of chocolate and it all going wrong that I got the chance to ask. And then it became just a really important lesson as a graphic designer and in so much of what I do that you have, things have to be congruent. Uh, as a designer, you can't convince people that something isn't true and you have to work within the parameters of expectations. So it, I think that that failure of an experiment was actually a really big success. That's super interesting. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. And Sarah, this is the end of our show. Uh, before we leave, I, I wanted to ask you where can people find us, find you, and also like where can they find your, all of your products. They can find, you not only have a shop, an online shop where they can find t-shirts and a lot of, uh, you know, your books, but also there's, um, there's a section on your website where you offer your workshops and trainings. There's also, which I will add to the, to the show notes, there's also this section of quizzes and um, research uh, resources where uh, listeners can take part into uh, your research and perhaps show up in one of your books in the future. So where can people find you? What is the best way for them to, to find um, your products? So if you, everything I do is under the name of type tasting. So the website is typetasting.com. So tasting, not testing. Um, and the shop is there. So I've just, I've got cards and t-shirts and things just because it's fun. I'm a graphic designer. I want to design t-shirts again. Um, again, which was one of the first, the, the first ever job I had when I left school was t-shirts and it was screen printing. Um, and um, Instagram, find me on type tasting on Instagram and on Twitter. And that's where I have lots of conversations and I ask people things. And some of the answers, if you give a really big answer, then you'll get credited when I, I put things in books. And I always ask permission of things. Amazing. I will add all of this to the show notes so that people can find you. And to finish up, I always ask my guests, what would you say to someone that is just starting or perhaps someone that is just starting with typography? Don't take it too seriously. Find a way to fall in love with it, whether you walk around looking at street signs, whether you, um, you look at Martina's beautiful, beautiful lettering, just find something that you absolutely love 
And then that's your gateway into taking it more seriously and learning more about it. I love that. I love the idea of a gateway. And I think you, you create a perfect gateway for regular people to get to know more about typography and discover this, what I think is a fascinating world. So thank you so much, Sarah, for doing that and for enabling that for a lot of people. So this is it for everyone listening. Um, this is the end of the show. You can find me, the host of this show, on social networks at Martina Flor on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you have a question or comments, go to martinaflor.com slash podcast, where you can see previous episodes, find show notes, and send voice memos with your comments and questions. You can also watch these episodes on YouTube. Just go to martinaflor.com slash YouTube to find them. You can, of course, listen to all of our episodes on your favorite podcast platform. If you love this episode, subscribe to this podcast. And if you leave us a review, it will help others find us. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Sarah, so much for taking the time today to be on the podcast. And see you on the next episode of Letter Now. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>